Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Rising. We do have an excellent show for you today, but let's go ahead. We've got uh, a busy one this morning, so we're going to dive right on in into the latest on Ukraine. Uh, over the weekend, a U.S. journalist was shot and killed at another wounded in a suburb of Kiev, according to reports. Ukrainian officials were quick to blame Russian forces for the shooting, but the exact circumstances are still unknown. The U.S. is consulting with Kiev to determine how this happened. Meanwhile, Russia and Ukraine are holding peace negotiations today in an effort to secure a ceasefire, according to an official taking part in the talks. This comes after Zelensky called on President Biden to double down on Russian sanctions over the weekend. And the U.S. is now warning that Russia may use chemical weapons against Ukraine. But Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said there's no evidence of it happening anytime soon. And, and give us the big picture here, John. I know we've heard a lot about possible chemical, biological attacks and that the Russians were staging this false flag trying to say Ukraine is going to do an attack. What can you tell us more about that and how likely is that? How concerned are you this morning? Well, I want to be careful we don't get into intelligence assessments here. We continue to watch this very, very closely. It is of the Russian playbook that that which they accuse you of, they're planning to do. Now, again, we haven't seen anything indi that indicates some sort of imminent chemo chemical biological attack right now, but we're watching this very, very closely. With us now to discuss is journalist Glenn Greenwald. Glenn, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. So what do you make, you know, of the situation right now? I think we're hearing a lot of different information about the about the potential chemical attacks. And I, I think people reasonably shouldn't trust, you know, what they're hearing from Russian authorities. But then there's also a lot of automatic trust by some members of our media in what we hear from our government, from the Ukrainian government, and probably some, you know, distrust. It's a confusing war situation is merited, you know, all the way around on every side of this. But what do you make of it? So there are things we know and things we don't know. For weeks, the Russians and the Chinese have been alleging that the U.S. has been working with the Ukrainians to create bioweapons labs that can be very dangerous, that have very dangerous pathogens. Most people, at least that I know, including myself, paid little attention to that because they were just claims without evidence from the Russian and Chinese governments that obviously deserve a great amount of skepticism and shouldn't be believed absent evidence, which was lacking. The issue really became... Uh, a significant issue when Victoria Nuland, who is the Undersecretary of State and has been basically running Ukraine for the United States since at least Hillary Clinton's State Department, went before the Senate and was asked by Marco Rubio, I'm sure you guys have covered it, does Ukraine have biological and chemical weapons programs? And she didn't say no. She referred to these research facilities, biological research facilities, which she said are so dangerous, she's worried they're going to fall into Russian hands. This is what we know for sure, that they do have, Ukraine does, biological research facilities that contain seriously dangerous pathogens that can easily be weaponized if they're not already. This is what Tulsi Gabbard was talking about yesterday when she raised the concern by saying, we know for certain there are these labs in Ukraine that have these dangerous pathogens and haven't been secured and was criticizing the U.S. and Ukrainian governments for not having secured them in light of the Russian invasion. And she was widely called a traitor, including by Mitt Romney and many other members of the media for having done so. And I think, Robbie, you touched on the key point, which is that we are at the point which we always arrive at in war, where most members of the corporate media simply take U.S. government assertions 
or denials and treat them as unquestioned truth and have been quote unquote fact-checking these concerns as false based on nothing more than what the U.S. government has been telling them and that's always dangerous. I don't know how many times we have to learn that lesson. And there was an interesting exchange between uh, Sean Hannity and I think Jennifer Griffin at Fox News where she kind of pushed back on him and said, no, 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 Sean, what, you're, you're misunderstanding what Victoria Newland said. What, what she means is that we are winding down kind of Soviet era labs f from the 2000s. Uh, and and, but what I don't quite get is why they would, why that takes 15 or 20 years. So have you, have you looked into that further, this, this pushback to Victoria Newland's testimony that actually these are just Soviet era labs that we're winding down and cleaning up. Is there anything to that? What, what, what do we know about the research that's being done? So it, just let's use common sense for a moment. Aside from the intuitively absurd notion that it would take 15 to 20 years for the United States with all of its resources and all of its dedication to shut down some Soviet era labs, 15 years it would take to secure and shut down those labs, that seems highly improbable. The more important point, though, is that it doesn't square. You can't reconcile it, that claim of the U.S. government that Jennifer Griffin dutifully mimicked with what Victoria Newland said, because if they're Soviet era weapons programs, and there are Soviet era chemical and biological weapons programs in these former Soviet republics that the United States has been trying to secure, that is true. Why would you be concerned that they would fall into the hands of Russia if they were Soviet era programs? It stands to reason, doesn't it, that Russia, the capital of the Soviet Union, the kind of command and control base of it, would already have those materials. You would need to worry about them falling into the hands. What is happening here is clear to me, Ryan, which is the United States plays this semantic game, which is they absolutely do develop biological and chemical weapons. We know that for sure. The FBI says the anthrax attacks in 2001, which remember were highly sophisticated weaponized strains of anthrax, came from a U.S. Army lab, part of the infectious disease complex in the United States that a U.S. Army scientist unleashed on U.S. soil. We know that the U.S. government, based on reporting by your news outlet, also was helping to fund in China experiments to make the various coronaviruses more lethal and more contagious. These are biological weapons. The argument, though, of the U.S. government is, no, as long as we're developing these weapons for the purpose of studying them and developing vaccines for them, they don't count as weapons. They only become biological weapons when your intention is to use them offensively. But they're still the same thing. So even by the U.S. government's own acknowledgement of what's in Ukraine, and you can look at Reuters articles about the World Health Organization saying the U.S. has been funding various programs like this in Ukraine. The, when they say they're not biological weapons programs, they're just playing that semantic game. Clearly, they're concerned, they say, that the materials are going to fall into Russian hands and the Russians can weaponize them, which is that same semantic uh, game that they play always when it comes to the question of biological weapons. So, Gwen, how much of uh, the going back to the journalist that was killed and also the, um, the, the claims that Russia is going to potentially be unleashing chemical weapons. How much of this do you think is actual evidence that this was, you know, you know Russians did the, these terrible things and Russians are going to be doing these terrible things? Or how much of it do you think is potentially false flag to try to bait us into emotionally wanting to go into war? 
I have, you know, I don't know who killed that journalist and wounded the other one. The claim definitively being made is that it was the Russians who killed them. Maybe the Russians did. I haven't seen any evidence for that. It's certainly possible, but not at all proven. And I think the broader point is the one that you raised, which is if you look at the vast majority of news articles about Ukraine, just go to the New York Times front page. This is something I noticed when I first began writing about politics is this format that always gets used, especially in moments like these, is the headline will be X, Y, and Z happen, comma, officials say. And then the body of the article beginning in the first paragraph is A, B, and C took place, officials tell the New York Times. And when we're in wartime or in any other kinds of crisis, including things like COVID or anything else like that, this practice becomes even more pervasive where automatically whatever claims the U.S. government tells these journalists gets treated as truth, forms the basis of these media outlets telling people what's happening. And you can't question it or in any way investigate it, because if you do, it means you're a Russian propagandist because you're disbelieving the claims of the U.S. government. And this is what I think is the most odious thing right now when it comes to media coverage of the war. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of very odd claims by former U.S. government officials. Last week, the Rachel Maddow Show, uh, the blog, tweeted out that Hitler, quote, didn't kill ethnic Germans and claimed that Putin slaughtered the people he has come to liberate. They corrected themselves in response, saying Hitler killed millions of Germans. We tweeted out an inaccurate statement made by a guest on the show without attribution. That was former ambassador, I believe, uh, McFall. Glenn, you pointed out that the whitewashing of Hitler's crimes is a logical next step, considering Facebook's encouragement of actual neo-Nazi militia members uh, fighting Russia. So I just thought this was a kind of unintentionally hilarious moment where they're, they're you know, it, it, after you know years of comparing everything to Hitler, everything is Nazis, and you know this is a situation that actually calls for, you know what, it, it, like frankly, a little bit of nuance uh, with respect to like the Nazi question, and all of a sudden it's just a totally different narrative you hear from the mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, look, it is definitely the case that it's wrong to claim that the majority of Ukrainians or the majority of the Ukrainian government is composed of neo-Nazis. But you can go back for the last decade and see the most mainstream news outlets in the West warning that neo-Nazi militias and ultranationalist groups with ties to notorious World War II Nazi sympathizers, they have pictures of them on the wall, they declare them national heroes, are a serious force inside Ukraine. And obviously in, in war, even though they're not the majority or anything close, it's just like what we saw in Syria. You know, the Syria revolution against Assad began with ordinary Syrians fighting back and going into the streets. But when the war really got, you know, intense, it was the most extremist fighters, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the like, that took center stage and stepped up and, and, and did most of the fighting. And the arms that we sent to Syria ended up in the hands of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It stands to reason that a lot of the arms, at least if not most of them, that were flooding Ukraine with are going to end up in the hands of these most extremist forces that happen to be neo-Nazis. You know, this the most amazing thing is there's this reporter from the quote-unquote Kiev Independent, which is funded by various Western interests, Ilya uh, Ponomarenko, who's become, you know, probably the most celebrated Western celebrity when it comes to Ukraine. And you can go onto his Twitter feed, it's still there, where he proclaims his affinity and, 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 and loyalty to the Azov Battalion, calling them his brothers in arms. And no one wants to hear 
that so much of these neo-Nazi factions inside Ukraine, though a minority, are still forming a lot of the messaging coming out of Ukraine and more importantly, are a major part of the fighting force in Ukraine that we're arming and funding, supporting and celebrating. Yeah, and from what I understand, they're also hiding amongst the civilians, fighting amongst the civilians, making things much more difficult for civilians in Ukraine. Um, there's been a lot of video of them, of, of civilians confronting them, saying, why are you setting up here? Go, you're, you know, you're making it dangerous for us because then they target you. So, but that's, you know, war is a terrible, terrible thing. And, and Glenn, at the same time, uh, I, I wanted to uh, lift up something where you, you've been in agreement, actually, with uh, President Zelensky. Zelensky, you know, according to Reuters recently, was saying that the U.S. has not been taking negotiations and, and diplomacy seriously enough, that they're not empowering Ukraine in, to kind of find a settlement, uh, to negotiate their way toward a peaceful resolution uh, to this invasion, and kind of suggesting that the, that the U.S. And, it, and it's, he wants more sanctions now, but he also wants the ability to negotiate those sanctions away, you know, at the table with Russians. You know, if, if the U.S. had, you know, as much forewarning as it did that this invasion, invasion was going to happen and diplomatically were unable to stop it. What do, what do you, what's your understanding of diplomatically you know, what the U.S.'s posture is right now? Do you think Zelensky's right that the U.S. is not serious enough about negotiating a way, a quick end to this before it spirals even further out of control? I, I do. I mean, the difference in interest is obvious. If you're Zelensky, if you're a Ukrainian, you want an end to the war, an honorable end where you don't just give the Russians everything they want and re re reward their aggression, but you want an end to the war. People are dying all around you. Your country's being destroyed. If you're the United States, though, that's not your country, Ukraine. What you want is you like seeing the Russians completely isolated out of Western Europe. You like seeing the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline finally destroyed so that the Europeans are forced instead to buy natural gas from the United States. We've seen both in Syria and Afghanistan how the United States loves to lure Russia into prolonged protracted insurgency wars where we arm the insurgency just enough to keep the war going, but not enough for the for the insurgents to win so that the war keeps going. And this is a thing, Ryan, you know, that I keep getting back to. It's like when we talk about the role of NATO expansion and what the US or NATO might have done to, to provoke, it's not about trying to switch blame. The blame lies with the, the aggressor, the invader. The point is to explore ways to bring about a diplomatic resolution to the end of this war, and there seems to be very little interest in doing that. You can go back to the first and the second day of the war, where Zelensky wanted to have direct talks with Russian officials, and you can find in the Washington Post and the New York Times them making clear that the position of the U.S. government was those talks shouldn't be held, both because they're futile and because it will reward Russian aggression. So I don't know what's in the minds of the U.S. government. It's too big of an entity to talk about one motive. That's always what happened whenever someone would say, why did the U.S. attack Iraq? As if you could isolate one person or one motive. But the actions of the U.S. government seem very clearly to reflect a lack of interest in diplomatically ending this war, if not the opposite, which is an affirmative desire for it not to end at least yet. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Stay around. We'll tell you what's on our radars in just a minute. So, Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, the scientist at the center of the lab leak controversy is a man named Peter Dajak. 
He's the head of an organization called EcoHealth Alliance, and he's gotten tens of millions of dollars over the years for research into coronaviruses and other pathogens. Since 2005, he's been working closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Starting in 2014, his organization with NIH funding collaborated on research there that involved gain-of-function research. We also know that in 2018, Dajak applied to DARPA for a grant to fund a project that would work to insert furin cleavage sites into the spikes of SARS-related viruses. Now, that research was never funded, but we don't know for sure whether any of it was ever performed. It matters because the furin cleavage site found in the virus that created this pandemic is what's so unique about it, and it's what scientists initially flagged as evidence that it was likely made in a lab. Now, in early February 2020, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, got on a conference call with leading scientists and were told by many of them that the origin seemed likely to be a lab and the furin cleavage site was a key tell. The day after the call, as we've reported here before, Dr. Jeremy Farrar sent around notes, including to Fauci and Collins, summarizing what some of the scientists had said on the call. Redacted versions of those notes were obtained by The Intercept, and House Republicans subsequently obtained and released unredacted versions. One scientist, Mike Farzan, said this, for instance, quote, he is bothered by the furin site and has a hard time explaining that as an event outside the lab, though there are possible ways in nature, but highly unlikely. So a few days later, the scientists were told not to explore the lab leak theory, lest they create grist for conspiracy theorists. Instead, Fauci publicly ridiculed the notion. Peter Dajak played a leading role tamping down discussion of the lab leak theory by secretly organizing a group of scientists to send a letter to The Lancet debunking the idea. Now, at The Intercept, we've repeatedly reached out to Dajak. At one point, he responded through a press secretary, but generally hasn't responded at all. In late February, he finally agreed to speak to reporters Sharon Lerner and Mara Fistendahl, who've been doggedly on this story since the beginning. So the full interview is worth a read, but I want to highlight two exchanges that appear to contradict each other on their face and really go to the heart of the question. So Sharon and Mara ask, quote, did EcoHealth Alliance or the Wuhan Institute of Virology, through its partnership with EcoHealth Alliance, ever insert a furin cleavage site into a bat coronavirus genetic sequence? He says, of course we did not do that. I really don't understand how that could be a question at this point. It's beyond the pale. That's not in our plans, and it's not in any of our reports. So of course we didn't do that. All right, so that's pretty unequivocal. It's beyond the pale. Of course we didn't do that. Now, again, whether they inserted a furin cleavage site is a key question, because if they did, that could explain how the virus came to look and act like it does. But then Sharon and Mara then asked the logical follow-up. But isn't it the case that you submitted a grant proposal to DARPA to do so? And he said, we did submit a proposal to DARPA. I've not checked through the one that's online that it's the correct document. What I do know is it was widely reported that DARPA rejected that because there were concerns about safety issues. That is absolutely untrue. The document that allegedly is DARPA's response, their review of our proposal, I've never seen that before. It was never sent to us. I don't know if it's real. DARPA had a process by which people who didn't get funded could do an interview with them to find out why they didn't get funded, so I did that. Never once did they mention any concerns or issues around safety. Never once did they mention gain of function. The reason they told us it was rejected was because the amount we asked for was too much for them. They couldn't afford it. They actually encouraged us to resubmit in different ways. We then had protracted conversations with them about funding specific parts of it. They liked the proposal, unquote. 
Now, a DARPA source has since confirmed the document's authenticity to Project Veritas on the record, so there's no doubt anymore that it's authentic, and Dajak doesn't claim it is. It is or isn't. So in two questions, he's gone from saying the research is beyond the pale to saying DARPA liked it, but it was too expensive. So the next question is, of course, was any of the work described in that proposal completed prior to its submission? And this is Sharon and Mara. We were told by multiple sources that when you submit a grant, that at least some of the work would have been done, unquote. And that's the critical question. And it's one we haven't gotten an answer to yet. We know the grant wasn't funded, but lots of work happens outside of grant funding, as scientists do research to see which projects would be best to apply for full funding for. So Dajak replied, when you write a grant proposal and propose to do a new line of research, which is what we did, we would not be doing that research before we submit the proposal. That's not how it works, unquote. But lots of scientists have said that, in fact, that is exactly how it works. That it's very unusual to apply for funding for a line of research you haven't even remotely experimented with. So they pressed further, quote, when we asked you if you had ever inserted a furin cleavage site to a coronavirus, you responded with outrage, but that is what was described in the DARPA proposal. And Dajak responded, no, what you said is, did we insert a furin cleavage site? And what I said was, of course not. If we had done that work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it would have been published by now. It would have been made public in our reports to the NIH. The DARPA proposal was not funded, therefore the work was not done, simple. Okay, but again, it's not that simple. And then the next back and forth, he allows that perhaps a colleague of his in North Carolina did some of this work. But if you acknowledge that you proposed to DARPA to insert a furin cleavage site, and he says, I refute that that was the goal of the DARPA proposal. The idea was not to insert a furin cleavage site in a virus to see what happens. That's not what was proposed. The proposal was to look for those polybasic cleavage sites, that's another word for furin, in nature because we knew that that, was the, that has the potential to make a virus more able to infect people and move from person to person. If we found mutations around that polybasic cleavage site that looked like it could be evolvable, the idea was then that Ralph Barrick's lab at UNC would do some work to see how evolvable that site was. So that work never happened. The proposal was not funded, unquote. And so in later exchanges with The Intercept reporters, he says he doesn't know if Ralph Barrick did that work, but he doubts it. Now, the interview began with Dajak calling it all beyond the pale, but halfway into it, he started making a rousing defense of it. So the reporters told him, quote, some virologists were dismayed to see the insertion of furin cleavage sites in this proposal. I don't know why any, and he says, I don't know why anyone would be dismayed at that because furin cleavage sites were first researched in the influenza viruses. And it's well known that that's something you should look for if you're interested in viral virulence factors. Second, there's actually a published paper from way before our proposal was submitted, way before the pandemic, where a group actually inserted a furin cleavage site into SARS-CoV-1. So we were right to look for that. And I think the proposal stands as a valid and actually quite predictive effort to understand the risk of viruses. You've got to look at the big picture of why we do this research. We're not doing it as a sort of academic interest. What would happen if you put a cleavage site here? No, this work is done to say what viruses are there out there in the wild that have the potential to emerge in people and can we do something to stop them, develop vaccines, develop therapies, stop people making contact with those animals, unquote. Now, the earlier experiment he's talking about only involved the spike protein, not the full virus. So there was actually no risk of it escaping, which he must know. 
And so, and so Kimmy starts with, this is outrageous, beyond the pale yeah. that we would do research like this, and then finishes with, it's really important research. Yeah. It should have been funded. Well, and the best point that you make about this is people don't just apply for grants on theoretical. They have to have at least done something in order to then say, now we need millions of dollars. I mean, they're asking for a lot of money. And this is just the same principle for business. If you're going to go and look for a, a venture capitalist or a funder of some kind, you have to have something prototype to show them. Some. Right. <laughs> some kind of prototype to say, look, we've, we, we really think this would work. And this is why we think this would work. And so we think you should invest all of this massive amount of money into that. So so that's where it gets really scary is that if they were just if they were just looking into this to in order to get the funding, then maybe they wouldn't have had all the checks that you normally would get when you had full funding, because then you could put all of that into place. So you're kind of playing around. I actually thought the most Weasley thing he says is at the very end when he starts defending it and say, you know, we do all this research, you know, not just just not just to experiment, but because it's important, because we're going to come up with all these things to combat these mutant viruses we're inventing. But there's no what there, like there's right. no explanation there for why any of this research is necessary. Right. Like the, the vaccines we developed were not because we had done right. that research. The, the same thing with the therapeutic. We, yeah. we 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 didn't learn anything, and he doesn't even really explain what we're supposed to learn. He's like, we're doing this to learn more about these really scary viruses we're potentially creating. Well, what are you learning other than right. you can get a lot of people killed with them? Yeah. Right. Yes. No. <laughs> we definitely learned that, and the the. Throwing it to Ralph Barrick at UNC was also fascinating to me. It's like, so in other words, he's saying, we were going to look for these furin cleavage sites in nature, and then we were going to send them to Ralph, and Ralph was going to mess around with them at UNC. And, yeah. well, and then they're like, well, did Ralph do that? He's like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. You know, and what this does is... <laughs> we do a little better than that, maybe? Well, ever since we started talking about the lab leak theory, this was like in early March of 2020, uh, when that started to really kind of crop up, or late March in 2020, um, the Chinese actually were starting to point the finger back at the United States and said, don't blame... Uh, you know, look at your lab right. as well in North Carolina. Don't look at just us. If you're, gonna, if you're going to implicate us, then we can implicate you, so everybody should be investigated on this. Right. Because there's a lot of potential sources where this could have come from. So now it sounds like like, maybe we do need to be looking at everything. Right. And so both sides were like, you know what? Never mind. Right. And that's what they're doing. <laughs> let's not look at Wuhan. Let's not look at North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Let's find the bat. Oh, we couldn't find the bat? Never mind. Right. Don't worry about it. I, I don't think anyone who is remotely, even like 1% curious about gain of function and lab leak would be put at ease by that interview. No. <laughs> that, was, that was not setting anyone at ease. That was... That was alarming, in that, fact. There's, and there's a ton of great stuff in it, because they, 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 they know this issue back and, uh, back and front and back. And so it was, it was nice to see them kind of go back and forth. They didn't let him get away with anything. Yeah, no, yeah. good, good yeah. job to your reporters. Yeah, really. really. Good job. Yeah. But now we have more to investigate. <laughs> more to be, oh, yes, we do. More to be yeah. very, very afraid of. <laughs> Who we got next? Who's doing a radar next? I think I it's know. me. I think I'm All next. right, Kim, yeah. looking forward to yours. What's on your radar, Kim? Well, YouTube has struck again. The Kim Iverson Show channel is currently suspended for one week for violating YouTube's medical misinformation policy. 
Now, some of you may know I have my own YouTube show that I started a little over three years ago. Throughout 2019 and into early 2020, before the pandemic, my channel grew very quickly, averaging 15 to 20,000 subscribers per month. My focus was on the Democratic primary, of course, and foreign policy. I interviewed candidates such as Tulsi Gabbard and Marianne Williamson and attended the Democratic debate in Atlanta. I traveled to the West Bank to witness the Israeli-Palestinian conflict firsthand and did in-depth pieces on the various U.S. foreign entanglements. Now, many of my videos garnered hundreds of thousands of views, and within a little over a year, I hit 250,000 subscribers. And I'm not just tooting my own horn, I have a point to all of this. Everything with my channel was going incredibly well, almost too well. Viewers and people from other channels were suspicious I was somehow an agent of the deep state. While other channels and hosts were palling around with each other, very few paid me any attention. They thought there was no way my channel could grow as fast as it was without some inside help. But there wasn't any help. I did it all alone, sitting in a bedroom I had converted into a studio with a fabric backdrop, a ring light, and a starter DSLR. I did my own lighting, sound, filming, and editing. I was living with my family while I got the channel going, and Airbnb being my own apartment for cash. But after a while of grinding it out, my channel started to make money. By November of 2019, I was able to get back to living on my own. I started looking into hiring help. Then the pandemic hit. The focus of my attention and everyone else's shifted to the virus and lockdowns. I was against the lockdowns from day one. I argued they would result in a massive transfer of wealth, an unprecedented limitation of freedoms, and would only cause immense harm to children and others who are of low risk for the virus. I was also willing to discuss the lab leak theory. End of March of 2020 and into April, I made a few videos about the theory. One of my videos hit over a million views. Then suddenly, my video was removed by YouTube. They didn't have the same strike policy they have now. Instead, my channel suddenly went from explosive growth to zero growth, with my videos barely able to hit 10,000 views. So I went from 15 to 20,000 new subscribers per month to literally zero subscribers, not one. Very odd. This went on for months. In fact, my channel began losing subscribers, yet the content wasn't any different than the many radars you've seen me do here on Rising. There was one odd week in July of 2020 when the algorithm hit a glitch and I suddenly gained about 50,000 subscribers in a single week. Then boom, back to nothing. That one event con confirmed my suspicions that something was amiss. It wasn't that my views are unpopular with the people, they're just unpopular with the establishment. And I wasn't alone. Others reported having similar issues after reporting on the lab leak theory and criticizing lockdowns. They too saw their subscriber counts slow to a crawl at best and video view counts take a dive. But I trekked on. I found other ways to survive, but it took a long time for my channel to start to grow again. And now everyone is allowed to freely talk about the lab leak theory, so I was punished for something everyone can now talk about without consequence. And that's one of the biggest issues with this type of content curation. One week, something is misinformation. The next week, it's common discourse. I was hit a year later in April of 2021 for reporting on Johnson & Johnson's vaccine being halted, which ended up being temporary, and alleged side effects that were being reported in the news about other brands. I violated their medical misinformation policy. By this point, YouTube had implemented their strike system. First you get a warning, then you get a strike and can't upload for a week. If you get another strike, you can't upload for two weeks. Because there were two videos in question, they gave me a warning and a strike and limited me from uploading for a week. But a couple of months later, after some of the side effects were confirmed by Pfizer and the FDA, I appealed the strike and had it reversed to a warning. I didn't get my week back, but I at least shielded my channel from getting hit harder in the future. 
Well, that future came last Friday when I woke up to a message from YouTube telling me a video was removed for violating their medical misinformation policy. This resulted in a strike and I'm now suspended for posting for a week. Specifically, I violated their policy surrounding ivermectin. It is against YouTube's policy to post any content that claims ivermectin is either safe or effective in the treatment of COVID-19 or goes against the WHO. So I'm now in the doghouse or horse stable, if you will. Now, I'm lucky that I've had the opportunity to come here to the Hill, where I've had a platform. Many other independent creators have had to give up and find new lines of work. People who are genuinely good at this job, who are trying to share information with the world, are being cut out using a variety of tactics, from algorithmic suppression to outright bans. Information is being limited to only that which is sanctioned by the state. Private companies can do what they want, but if they choose to only allow the state-sanctioned narrative to be heard, what has become of our culture? Are we a free America, open to hear all sides of arguments, no matter how absurd or how much we disagree? Or are we one of a, nar of a, are we one, of a one narrative nation governed by Big Brother? We need to decide and we need to demand. But my fear is it's already been decided and demanded and unfortunately not in the favor of free speech and free thought. And that is my biggest concern with our culture now of censorship. We've developed this new culture and it's going on on both sides. We do see from the left this censorship of, you know, don't of what they've determined to be science or morality. Uh, if you go against that, that's misinformation. You should be deplatformed. You should be silenced. You should be canceled. I see it coming from the right as well, where there was actually a school district in Virginia talking about burning books that they didn't agree with. They actually mentioned, well, we should burn these books. Um, and it was about, um, you know, uh, critical race theory books or books for LGBTQ type issues and or stories involving gay teenagers. So we've kind of reached this point in society where, and maybe we've always been in it, I've just never really yeah, experienced it enough, but it does feel like we are at a point where everybody seems to be okay to some degree with censorship, and we're allowing these private companies to get away with it, and we're even encouraging it and saying, well, yeah, but you did X, Y, Z thing and you shouldn't have, or you shouldn't be allowed to read this book. And I'm of the opinion that, you know, I'm, I'm more of a free speech absolutist. I actually... I, I'm actually fairly extreme about it, but um, because I don't think there's really any speech that should be banned, including maybe even yelling fire in a theater and saying, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, you should look around and see if the fire is there. I, I get it. People are going to disagree with me on that. But well, at even least, that, you know, that anecdote is, is a, so people say that a lot. Well, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, but it's actually what that statement comes from is a, is a, a like a, a, a Supreme Court opinion that was not even I think it was I think it was the dissent. Uh, uh, so it's not there's no legal standard that says that it's something that people say, but it's not like just as you say, if there is a fire in the movie theater, you are supposed to yell fire. Right. And, and in fact, that that decision was being used to, you know, it was the majority decision, excuse me, but it was later uh, invalidated that precedent. But that was the precedent to to prohibit leaflets uh, against World War One from being distributed. So that metaphor was supposed to be like be saying something against the war, sapping the war effort was like yelling, falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater, which is which we would not right. accept. Right. Even even the most pro censorship person today would not say you are not allowed to distribute leaflets arguing against some some war. Although so I don't know these maybe days, we're I mean, getting there. But. Well, it seems like it. If you say anything against this war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine, you know suddenly you're being accused of being a, right. a you know I'm accused all the time of carrying Putin's vodka around or whatever yeah. it might be, but you know, people aren't able to say what they want. 
and that and that and people are being accused. So I don't know. Maybe our culture has reached back to the McCarthy era, or well, you can certainly see, sense in today's environment how people like Eugene Debs would like get thrown in prison in World War One. Like you can. You can find, right. finally, like, you can viscerally feel it. Like, just after 9-11, you could viscerally feel it then, too. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we're not at that place where they're going to be throwing people in prison, but you can understand with one, one or two more turns. The mainstream screw. media would be running articles about why is this man allowed to right. say things that is misinformation about the, 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 the necessity yeah. of, of entering this war, this, you know, dynastic dispute between yeah. powers. Like, that's what would happen. Yeah. And one quick point about YouTube, I, and I think there, I think this claim that it's that you can't say that lockdowns don't work, divorced from everything else, I think that's actually fine. I think it's obviously clear. I think it's correct. I don't think they should be the ones saying it, but I think it's obvious. Like China right now is locking down Shenzhen, Se no, no, city Ryan, of seventeen point five million. Ryan, like lockdowns work. Masks right. work. Everything works. <laughs> Everything works is, except for the stuff that doesn't work. What are you my, doing? <laughs> my point is China in a totalitarian way locking down Shenzhen, this city of 17.5, it will reduce the spread. Right? Yes. It will. The question is, do we support a totalitarian China government having that amount of power? That is, a, that is the question. So that, and that's what the public is supposed to work out to balance the right. costs and the right. benefits of these things. The Shenzhen example is particularly right, right, because it's happening right now, and it's a literally a totalitarian government, but it will work right. to some degree. Then they'll open but up, then they'll get hit again. Then they'll get they'll hit again. Right. They, they but I actually don't know do this forever. Really I don't work. know if, that's in, if, the, if the lockdown one is actually in, the, in their uh, community guidelines. We'd have to go back through I'm it. I'm pretty sure it is. Look and say, at, what, what can you say and what can you not say? And, you know, we're all kind of stuck yeah, it's, it to is that. in there. I remember it seeing is, it uh, the other day. Yeah. yeah. We're walking on eggshells. <laughs> right. But anyway, but yeah, they, so their algorithm pulls you right up to the edge. And then if you say one word. Right. Then all of a sudden it's, like, yeah. So they encourage the behavior that they claim to discourage. Well, we're, do, we're doing uh, our radars are three for three on, uh, on uh, I also have a, have a beef to pick with the, uh, the mainstream COVID mitigation efforts. So looking forward to that one. <laughs> Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, one of the last holdouts in terms of mask mandates has finally fallen, and that is Washington, D.C. schools. While many districts across the country began relaxing their COVID-19 masking requirements weeks or even months earlier, the nation's capital kept masking children due to the Centers for Disease Control's fervent belief that mask mandates make a meaningful dent in coronavirus transmission. Despite COVID-19 cases crashing and deaths and hospitalizations decreasing markedly, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has kept elements of the mandates in place. Schools, yes. Gyms, no. Public transportation, yes. Churches, no. Libraries, yes. Restaurants, no. And on and on and on. So you'd be forgiven for thinking there isn't actually anything scientific about this. But in any event, the Alliance Defending Freedom is suing D.C. to force the city to let private Catholic schools go without mass mandates. Bowser finally gave in and said, sure, private schools can do whatever they want. And now she's really giving in because even public schools will be allowed to go mask optional starting this Wednesday. Quote, I want to strongly reiterate that all our students and staff welcome to continue to wear a mask if they choose, and we will actively promote a climate where this choice is respected, D.C. Public Schools Chancellor Louis Farabee said in a Friday letter. Now, across the river in Virginia, many schools have been maskless for a while. But what I hear from parents of kids in those schools is that there's tremendous social pressure, actually, to keep masking. The kids who do not wear masks are derided as disease spreaders or worse, as Trump supporters. 
That's how seriously many liberal parents take masking, and it's because masking has been relentlessly reinforced by public health officials, Democratic politicians, the mainstream media, celebrities. Well, not, not at the Super Bowl or the award shows, mind you, but you get the idea. So here's something interesting, however. A new paper, which in full disclosure has not yet been peer-reviewed, but is interesting nonetheless, found that school mask mandates didn't make very much of a difference in terms of the transmission of COVID-19. What's so interesting about this paper is that it was able to make a fairly direct comparison. So this, this paper looked at students in Catalonia and Spain. There were school-wide mask mandates for kids ages 6 to 11, but not for kids ages 3 to 5. So the preschools were allowed to be unmasked. There were about 600,000 students in total who were part of the study. And what the study found was that the older kids were more likely to get COVID in general. The secondary attack rate, that is the rate of transmission from infected individuals to the people in their social circles, was not really statistically different between the five-year-olds and the six-year-olds. The five-year-olds unmasked, the six-year-olds masked. And are not the base reproduction number, the base reproduction number for COVID, it was similar in both groups, around 0.9, slightly less than one. So the collected data was based on the fall 2021 semester, so that's during the Delta wave in Spain. The study's conclusion was that mass mandates in schools were not associated with lower SARS-CoV-2 incidents or transmission, suggesting that this intervention, the mass mandates, was just not very effective. Instead, age dependency was the most important factor in explaining the transmission risk for children attending school, end quote. How interesting. Obviously, this study cuts against the CDC's quasi-religious beliefs that mass mandates were an important way to fight COVID-19 in schools. So I've explained in previous radars, the studies that the CDC has relied upon to defend its thesis in favor of mass mandates, though those studies are extremely flawed. The main one, a study of Arizona schools, was debunked by The Atlantic, which is hardly some bastion of contrarian COVID denialism. Indeed, the faith in school mass mandates is a uniquely American belief. The World Health Organization does not recommend mass requirements for small children, and it thinks mass should in general be optional, even for older kids. The European Center for Disease Prevention and Control did not recommend masks for primary school students at all. Not just because mask mandates may not be as effective at containing COVID-19 as American health officials have claimed, that doesn't mean masks are useless or don't work. Masks can work. They can limit the spread. And anyone who wants to enjoy some extra protection from disease, you can feel free to wear a mask. One-way masking is a thing that even the CDC now recognizes. But look, it's hard to take a, take a gander at all the available data and conclude that requiring masks in schools put a significant dent in cases. And that data comes from the Delta wave. Omicron was probably even more adept at evading the masks in terms of like everyone getting it, regardless of what kind of mitigation efforts they were following. So why do I bring this up? COVID-19 is quickly fading from the news cycle, having been suddenly displaced by the war in Ukraine. And with any hope, this might very well be my last radar on school mass mandates. They are finally going away, and I am glad. I couldn't be happier. But let's not completely forget that the U.S. government pushed these mass mandates on us. First, it was supposed to be for a short period of time. Then it was until our vaccines were available. Then it was until they're widely available. Then it was until enough people had taken them. Then it was until people just gradually ran out of patience, I guess. After months and months of wrestling mass onto teenagers while they exercised outdoors, onto airline passengers in between bites of food, onto screaming toddlers at daycare centers, we're finding out that maybe, just maybe, they didn't make quite as much of a difference as we were led to believe. Oh well, I guess. 
Well, they're still masking like on a lot of places, like airplanes. And airplanes still <laughs> so, masking. So this might not be your last and radar. I, and I was checking, uh, you, I haven't talked about this in a while, but and as much as I complain about the school mask mandates, university, college masking policies are still the most insane of ever. And you know, we're, we're talking about like the safest, I guess maybe they're not quite as safe as very young children, but they're, they are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the able-bodied young people who are required to be vaccinated at college campuses Many of them are still masked in very wide. I, I, I get emails still from the University of Michigan. This is where I graduated. And they just said that you no longer have to wear masks in most places, but they're still going to have to wear them in class. And a lot so, of them know, are even boosted. They're required to have boosted. Required to be well. boosted. Yeah. And maybe even a fourth now that Pfizer came out saying you got to get a fourth one. And it's one. just like, for what? And, and what, for what? What's interesting about this particular debate, though, is that YouTube insists that you follow World Health Organization guidelines. And World Health Organization on masks has been much more flexible than a lot of schools have been. You know, right. On their own website, decisions about mask use in children should be driven by what is in the best interest of the child. Mask use should be flexible so that children can continue play, education, and everyday activities. These activities are an important part of child development and health. No child should be denied, should be denied access to school or activities because of lack of a mask. That's yeah. the World Health Organization. But YouTube also says they not only follow WHO, but... But what do you do when they disagree? CDC right. and <laughs> right. other... And, they, right. and they, right. they are in slight conflict. Right. The, the CDC, the American health authorities, have been far, far more pro-masking, especially pro-masking of young people, than their counterparts in Europe. Yeah. But when I talk to parents, a lot of them say, well, look at Asia. And the Asian kids are wearing masks to school. So if they can adhere yeah. to it and look at the low rates of spread over there, then it must work and we must do it over here as well. And so I think they're pointing to these other societies and saying, look, they have low rates of spread. So let's do everything they're doing. And, and I understand that logic completely. But I think there might be, I, I'm not 100% certain if kids in Asia, once they get into the classroom, if they keep that mask on. I do know that in many depends, Asian societies. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it does. And I'm sure it, it depends on the case rates. But I do know that in, um, we see all these photographs of all these Asian people wearing masks and everybody's complying, but a lot of it is they do have a culture of wearing masks on public transport and when they're going to and from places, but not necessarily once they get inside. So it'd be interesting to see those photographs, but that's what a lot of people are pointing to. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember very early when, uh, when Fauci was saying, ah, don't worry about masks. They could be even yeah. counterproductive when he was basically lying so that people wouldn't go out and get them. I remember thinking, I don't believe him because I have been seeing Asian American people on buses and subways for years wearing them. They're not idiots. Like if they're wearing yeah. them, it's because they have some experience with them in the past where they worked for them. Like if it worked good Although, enough for them. Good I mean, for I them. remember I, I used to see when you'd see those people on airplanes or in the airport or what. I I remember I would I would think. How like how germophobic are you? Or something? That's what I would think. Well, in, in Asia, head. I think a lot of them wore the masks for pollution. Well, all, yes, and also saw, like they had saw other SARS that whipped through over the last 10, 15 years that didn't become global pandemics, thank God. Right. Well, they didn't infect that many yeah. people, so I think it was, mo yeah, I mean. But you, yes, you know, I mean, that, that's, pollution is that's a part of it, too, yeah. Right, right. Well, that was our, our three COVID radar <laughs> of the day. You know, masks are good for also kitty litter when you're changing the kitty litter. <laughs> Really? Yeah, you're not going to breathe in that disgusting kitty. Good litter. point. I've never, you know, because I'm always changing my cat. If I have both a cat, people. I have it yeah, we have cats. Yeah. We're, all, we're all, you're both cat people and dog people. I'm yep. just right. a dog person. You need to get a cat. The whole zoo at home. Not going not gonna to get a cat. <laughs> well, our rising panel is next, and we'll discuss the criticisms around Tulsi Gabbard's latest comments on Ukraine. Stick around. 
The Russian-Ukraine crisis is creating a political divide here at home, and eyebrows were further raised over the weekend when former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard posted this video on Twitter. There are 25 to 30 U.S.-funded biolabs in Ukraine. According to the U.S. government, these biolabs are conducting research on dangerous pathogens. Ukraine is in an active war zone with widespread bombing, artillery, and shelling, and these facilities even in the best of circumstances, could easily be compromised and release these deadly pathogens. Instead of trying to cover this up, the Biden-Harris administration needs to work with Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the UN to immediately implement a ceasefire for all military action in the vicinity of these labs until they're secured and these pathogens are destroyed. Well, Republican Senator Mitt Romney issued a scathing response, tweeting, quote, Tulsi Gabbard is parroting false Russian propaganda. Her treasonous lies may well cost lives. Hillary Clinton, is that you? Others have come out against Gabbard for what they've said is furthering a Kremlin-backed conspiracy. Not the first time she's been accused of this. Some pointed to 2019 when former presidential Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton, as Kim pointed out, suggested that the Russians were grooming Gabbard to run in the 2020 presidential election. Here's what she said three years ago in a podcast with former Obama aide David Bluff. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. Joining us now to discuss the renewed rumors is Dr. Rashad Ritchie, host of Indisputable and Philip Wegman, White House reporter for Real Clear Politics. Welcome to you both. Good morning. So, Philip, do you think there is uh, an increasing divide in the Republican Party and the elected officials uh, on how to approach this? Um, Gabbard is not a member of the Republican Party, but she's someone who's, I think, much better loved by the right at this point than by anyone in her party, the Democrats. So it was interesting to see Romney go after her, you know, this uh, viciously really taking the same stance that, that Hillary Clinton, not Republican and Democrat, took um, a few years ago. Is this just kind of further proof that these like lines are being totally scrambled or people are sorting themselves into different political factions? It's going to take us some time to figure out where the lines stand after all of this. We're going to have to uh, follow the thread and sort of see what, what the landscape looks like in terms of left versus right, which is easy for people to follow. Uh, but when it comes to uh, more complicated issues, the sort of red versus blue dynamic just doesn't do it. Um, in terms of this conversation, I mean, there are biological research facilities in Ukraine, according to the State Department and others in the federal government. The United States came alongside Ukraine in 2005 and did its best to help them uh, secure these former Soviet labs and also to help them um, you know, use these labs in a proper manner, much like our CDC does. That's the, the line from uh, the federal government thus far. What's interesting is that as uh, we see Tulsi Gabbard deviate from that, uh, rather than having Senator Mitt Romney come out and say, you know, here are the facts, here's actually what's going on. Um, instead, he decided to torch her. And, you know, his argument is, is interesting um, because uh, the, the former uh, Bain Capital executive uh, goes after her and says that she's committing treason, not that she's misinformed, not that she has her facts wrong. He says that she is willfully committing treason. Um, I think when you question someone's motives like that and essentially parrot the, uh, 
a talking point that we heard from from Hillary Clinton uh, during the the previous campaign cycle. Um, then that goes from all right, we're having a discussion about this issue where there potentially can be a lot of misinformation to um, I think that you are a bad actor. I question your motives, and therefore uh, you are beyond um, you know you are beyond even having a conversation with. And Dr. Ritchie, I've been you know highly critical of the turn that you know. Tulsi Gabbard's taken over the last couple of years, but I was confused by this particular pile-on. If it does seem like these labs are of serious concern, if you have dangerous pathogenic bio labs in a war zone, that does seem something that is of concern, not just to Ukrainians and not just to Russians and Europeans, but as we've learned from COVID, a pathogen knows no borders. So, what was what was up with this? pile on here. Isn't she raising something that's of serious concern? I think she's intentionally taking it out of context. And let's contextualize Gabbard herself. Uh, This is not the first time for the rodeo uh, with her. She's done this before. Uh, So there's a hypersensitivity as it relates to her uh, commentary in reference to this. I do agree. This is an element of concern. People should talk about it but within the proper framework. She took it outside of that proper framework. Uh, And let's not forget, she has echoed the conspiracy theory created by Russia, echoed by China, and now wholly adopted by Gabbard. And I think that context is very important when you see people like Mitt Romney and others say this individual is treasonous. Now, it is warranted for conversation, for sure. uh, And I think the rebuttal Uh, is necessary, especially from the State House, excuse me, from the State Department and also from the White House. But once again, she has not been a good faith actor with previous commentary, in my opinion. And I think that's part of the pylon that you see happening to Gabbard right now. Yeah, treasonous. It was just crazy language. We're not at war with Russia. We're, we're not. How how could it be, you know, treasonous to like express your opinion about this issue of of concern? That's that's where it just really went, you know, completely over the top from Romney. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, but once again, we have utilized that terminology, or those on the right in particular, they've utilized their terminology against people like President Barack Obama, uh, against uh, President Joe Biden, and also Secretary. Uh, Clinton uh, when she was uh, in power herself. So that term has been loosely used. Uh, that That is actually a legal term that has a legal definition that has not been applied in the social narrative of how we have uh, used it in reference to political opponents in America. Philip, I'm, I'm curious what type of realignment you think might be happening now. I mean, when I see Tulsi Gabbard come out, who, yes, she's coming from the Democratic Party, but I think many of us would argue that she's moved more towards the Republican Party. Um, and, we, and we see her saying things that, you know, you've got Mitt Romney, I mean, as we pointed out, calling her treasonous. Hillary Clinton, also part of the establishment machine, calling her a traitor to the, or, or a Russian asset or, of some sort, making that implication. It is, it is like we're having this realignment happening. It kind of reminds me of the 70s when the Democratic Party, actually, the very first government shutdowns, if people remember way back then, was over the Democrats not being able to agree on, uh, on women's right to choose. And so half the Democrats were pro-choice, half the Democrats were pro-life, and it was a big squabble that they kept having with one another over and over and over again. And so we're seeing that there's this, and, and of course, Republicans had the same sort of uh, disagreements. Some were pro-life, some were pro-choice. And so, and now we see how that's, I know it's, you're pro-life if you're Republican and pro-choice if you're a Democrat. But 
almost we're seeing this new shift going on where we're seeing a lot of anti-war Republicans and anti-war Democrats coming together, I would say more anti-establishment. Where do you think this leads? Is there going to be a new realignment or do you think people will ultimately go back to their corners where they're supposed to belong in their respective parties? It's interesting that you mentioned the life issue because uh, speaking of realignments, Senator Mitt Romney has had many. Uh, at one time, he was actually, you know, uh, pro, you know, pro-abortion. Now he's pro-life. Um, certainly, he has uh, evolved. I think back to 2008, um, in particular, when you had the uh, the sort of uh, conserv- conservative establishment heartbroken um, that he was going to drop out of the Republican primary. He was seen as conservatives' last best hope. Fast forward you know, a dozen years or so, and now conservatives are complaining that uh, he's everything that's wrong with the Republican Party. I'm not certain that he has changed so much as we've seen an electorate that has developed an appetite uh, not for the traditional left uh, versus right uh, binary, uh, but instead you have people who, after pretty significant shocks to the system uh, in the last couple of years, whether that was Donald Trump, whether or not that was the pandemic, you have people looking around and saying, um, you know, actually, uh, it's not just red versus blue. I'm going to look at some of these, um, you know, folks and and look at, uh, you know, what, what they're saying rather than just the, the labels that they have. Um, and yeah, I, I think that you know, overall, overall, uh, as we move forward, we, we might see uh, voters identifying more with issue sets or more with personalities and not just with the uh, the normal uh, political parties that have dominated thus far. And doc, Dr. Ritchie, we've got to run, but any, any quick last words from you about where you think this all is heading? Yeah, I think we're going to go back to our corners. Uh, there's unprecedented tribalism in both parties right now. Uh, and you see that the middle is left out of that conversation primarily. Uh, So I do not see this as some great rallying uh, point for um, a more uh, centric or even a policy-based reality in America. Uh, I see politics now where it's completely tribal and unfortunately personality-based rather than policy-focused. Dr. Ritchie, Philip, uh, thank you both for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Last week, the House voted to add over $32 billion to the Pentagon's budget, bringing the total amount of funding for the fiscal year to a whopping $782 billion, adding an additional $13.6 billion in aid for Ukraine. According to a new Gallup poll, Americans have mixed reviews of defense spending. Americans are essentially split into three camps. 32% say there is too little military spending. 31% say too much, while 34% say it's just right. This according to a February survey. British journalist and editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn, is with us now to discuss. Andrew, welcome. Good to be with you. Good morning. Andrew's the author of the great new book, Spoils of War. And I'm, I'm curious when you saw that, uh, you know, when you saw that February poll saying that basically two-thirds of Americans are either comfortable uh, with the amount of def- defense military spending that we do, or would like to see more of it, whether whether that comported with your understanding of how the military industrial complex has slotted itself into American public opinion. Well, <clears throat> sad to say, it's no, it is no surprise. Um, you know, they've worked so hard and so successfully to uh, to plant the notion in, our, in everyone's heads that more money equals more defense, better defense. You know, um, 
that you know that i guess we should it's sad but it's no surprise that um, two-thirds of the american public are okay with that um they you know the essential point is of course that no more money does not equal more defense and and obviously if the public is that divided on the question there's going to be there's no pressure then within the government to spend less the pre, you know the pressure coming from the insiders from the from the machine from the contractors etc is always to spend more there would there would need to be significant like overwhelming uh, sentiment among the public to not do that to counteract those you know special kinds of pressures so the fact that that doesn't exist doesn't it just suggest we're going to continue to get increased military spending over and over and over again unfortunately yes you know as um as you I think you pointed out that the that 782.5 billion dollar figure was actually more than the pentagon asked for originally um i mean i think they <clears throat> they were very happy to accept the extra money and probably expected to get it so I think the only way you're ever going to change things, if you, if you point out or get get the message across uh, to the public that they're being had, you know, that this, this ex- as I said, the um, more money does not equal extra defense. I mean, for example, they're spending, you know, buying yet more F-35s, a plane which the Pentagon is very keen for us not to know, the Air Force is keen for us not to understand, um, at its very best, is only capable of carrying out its wartime missions just over half the time. And uh, for some of its, uh, some of the versions, like 6% of the time, you know, this is pathetic. And it's, it's also outrageous that they should be telling us, you know, that we need this extra, need all this money to defend you, the national security of the United States, when actually they know themselves very well that it does no such thing. And I think that's the message that has to get across. Well, now it's an industry, and so they can't cut the jobs. Uh, a lot of Congress people don't even want to cut those jobs. And, uh, and so there probably is an expectation that this budget will just continue to increase and increase, especially as pay raises are needed and whatnot. But what, where does this lead us? So if we're not going to be able to get rid of this budget or, or pare it down a bit, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I worry that this is how empires fall, right? That they just continue to spend so much money on military and continue to allow the people at home to wallow in and not being able to pay their bills and not being able to have, you know, nice quality of life, middle, building up the middle class. So where does this, where do you see this leading us? Do we just have to suck it up and live with the military industrial complex or what? Well, if you want a cautionary tale, take a look at the, uh, the late Soviet Union. Uh, there's no question that, you know, for years and years, uh, the military industrial complex over there ruled the roost and they added more and more weapons system, weapons contracts. And as we know, they, they were giving out those contracts, not because the military necessarily asked for them or, um, you know, needed, certainly didn't need them. I mean, um, I think they had 18 different kinds of missile systems and so forth. It was to provide jobs to keep, you know, to keep employment up. Um, and the end, so they went on pouring money down the hole and that led in a major way to the, uh, to the whole thing collapsing and, you know, falling into smithereens with effects that we can see all too vividly today. And if, if you were kind of brought into the, the, the Pentagon procurement room and said, uh, 
Andrew, tell us, you know, where we can cut $500 billion or $100 billion. What, what would be the places that you would go to first? You talked about the F-35, which is, you know, hilariously uh, inept. But, you know, what, what, are, what are some other systems that you would target? Well, I mean, $100 billion, pretty easy. You can, um, this whole nuclear modernization right. um, program that uh, Obama launched in 2010 to give us, uh, you know, a whole new... Um, ICBM, uh, a, a whole new U.S. Air Force bomber. That alone, I think, is going to come in at 200 million a pop, um, 203 million. Um, you know, it's easy. We don't need any of those things. We certainly don't need a new ICBM. We don't need actually any ICBMs. Um, the, you know, since if you need a nuclear deterrent, you know, we've got the submarine <coughs> submarine launch missiles. Uh, which are perfectly adequate defend, uh, deterrent. Uh, we don't need any of that. I mean, the, for that first hundred million or first hundred billion is pretty easy. Uh, I mean, I would I would go, I would go higher than that to get a better defense. You know, I mean, it's uh, the thing is, you know, the the argument is always couched as well. You know, we just need to spend the money on you know social programs on healthcare and so forth. We do need to do that, but I think you know particularly progressives ought to understand, you know, get it, get it around their heads that um, that they can win the defense argument too, because, you know, it's very clear that most of the money or a huge proportion of it is just being pissed away into, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with defending the country. You know, this, so this Gallup survey was conducted in February. I wonder what the news of the last few weeks, last two weeks in Ukraine, how does it shift public opinion when there's an active conflict going on and, and you know, the mainstream media is, is very, uh, not exactly pushing us in, into, into, into war necessarily, but but very you know very much in a kind of scared of Russia and something has to be done and that that sort of thing. Would would that tend to make the public even more willing to swallow massive military spending? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean that's uh, and that's not an unintended result. Um, you know the media the media loves war. Um, you know, media people, correspondents love war. It's where careers are made. Uh, it's one of the you know big lessons of you know the wars of the last you know going back to well any war you care to mention. Um, so there's been you know absolute you know rush to uh, to sell the war, to sell the idea of defense, um, and um, you know the, any lessons that might have been you know might have come out or were available from our last few wars, which didn't end so well. I mean, I'm, I'm talking Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I was speedily tossed overboard. And, you know, there's massive enthusiasm, which will be translated into, you know, more demands. And you're seeing this in the Congress. Um, <clears throat> there's a story today about how the Congress is pushing, you know, a more warlike stance on Biden, who actually, I mean, I'm glad to say is actually trying to hold back a bit i mean the administration can see that for example you know getting more actively involved in the war in ukraine by sending by doing this airplane deal or talking about a no-fly zone all that is complete madness i mean it'll expand the war which they are keen i'm glad to say keen to keen to stop and of course they should be because 
more war means for a start many more dead Ukrainians. Um, so, but, you know, the whole, there's such a sort of blast now of propaganda, of war propaganda by so many interested parties, um, you know, the military, the contractors, the press, and translated through into the Congress, bipartisan, um, that I feel, you know, we're on, we're on a very slippery slope here. And, you know, people, I really hope some people at least, you know, try and call a halt and you know, stop and think about it a bit. And, and in what ways are you seeing the, the weapons industry capitalize on on this invasion, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is it just as a reporter in my inbox, I'm seeing a, a ton of pitches from PR consultants for the for the weapons industry bragging about how their particular weapons are yeah. so effectively being deployed. And, do, you know, do we want to get on the phone with the vice president of whatever for you know, whatever weapons maker? Are, are you are you seeing them? Kind of yeah. u- use this moment to say, "Look, see, these things really do work." Well, yeah, I mean the the um, you know Raytheon with the javelin missile for sure. Yeah. Although I you know I'm really interested. I haven't yet seen any any reports from the field of how well. I mean, you know, a friend of mine in the defense business said to me, "At least if any good comes out of this, at least we'll have a decent operational test on the javelin missile, which is the anti-tank missile." I mean, so far I haven't seen it. Um, Obviously, the Ukraine, if it wasn't working so well, the Ukrainians wouldn't say so because they don't want to, uh, you know, diss whatever the American, U.S. might be sending them. But I mean, I'm also seeing stuff from, you know, these these sort of, I think, pretty sort of outlandish schemes for directed energy weapons, you know, which is complete stuff of science fiction, which no one's ever even showed a way that they can <clears throat> properly work or be in any way feasible, you know, for... Um, for Navy systems, you know, and it could be used, you know, thousands of miles from Ukraine. Um, you know, as I say, I mean, I always think back to, uh, I mean, I've quoted this many times, but the uh, the first in the first winter of the Korean War, half the casualties were from frostbite, U.S. casualties from frostbite. Why? Because we hadn't bothered to give them adequate boots. So they'd having to raid Chinese enemy trenches to get very boots. Meanwhile, we were spending billions and billions of billions of dollars on uh, strategic nuclear bombers, which were of no point in the in the Korean War, but were, was great for the aerospace industry. And that's what's going to happen again. Well, you know, I can guarantee you the bulk of spending that will come under the label of Ukraine will actually have absolutely nothing to do with Ukraine and probably very little to do with combat. We need a stronger boot lobby here in the United States. Surely. Andrew, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. The, The book is called Spoils of War, and we will have more rising right after this. Obviously, the war in Ukraine and the crushing of protests in Canada are two separate things. This war is a humanitarian disaster. It is wrong. What I'm saying is that If the reason that this war is wrong, or one of the reasons, is because it is against democratic principles, then you must ensure that where it is possible, where there is no militarised state opposing your ability to be democratic, you should be democratic. 
Otherwise, you do not have the same argument. You can criticize Russia for many, many reasons. You can condemn the actions of Russia, quite rightly, for many reasons. What you can't do is claim to be an exemplar of democracy if whenever you get the opportunity to be tyrannical, you take it. Let's see what Justin Trudeau had to say about Chinese state authoritarianism in 2014. He was asked which country he most admired and referred to China. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Even then, before Justin Trudeau became a sort of figure of loathing as a result of the trucker actions, and I'm sure for other things that I've not been following, he literally, while he's still in his boy band phase, is openly declaring affection for Chinese state authoritarianism. Because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. If only we had a dictatorship. <laughs> Don't worry, Justin. Future you has got that covered. Well, you know, That's one good of point. <laughs> Uh, which part? That whole thing. <laughs> so that the Russell Brand's point, or Russell Brand's Justin, part, no, or Russell Justin Brand's Trudeau part. saying China is able to implement all of the things that they want to implement extremely fast because they're a dictatorship. No, that is nonsense. Well, I mean, it is true. I guess it's true. But it, but the one big thing that kind of stands out on this is that um, you know many of us have been talking about the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, and one of the one of the thinkings about the World Economic Forum and kind of marching us to this new sort of world order is that um, it seems to be more bringing us towards the Chinese way of doing things, more in that, uh, you know, you don't own your own things necessarily. Uh, there's a, uh, an overarching authority that tells you what to do, but don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You're going to be really happy with it. And what's interesting is that Justin Trudeau is one of those young global leaders that came out of the World Economic Forum. So a lot of people are looking at this and saying, see, this is an example of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset in action, the type of mentality that it breeds into these young leaders that then go on to become leaders of these Western nations that then march us into this authoritarian way of being. I don't being. think we even need to go that far into looking for an explanation. Look, people in the government lust for more power, more way to control people, more authority, more bigger government. It's, it's, it's not, I don't, I don't think that's an ideology that needs to be like trained into you or educated into you. If when you're in the government, you start thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could make people do this or I could do this project or I could order people around. It's just like, it's a natural, it's a tendency of the Power, how power corrupts. You're showing that but, you know, your conservative self says that all, liber all liberals are commies. <laughs> well, maybe when, the, when you get into the government, all liberals and all conservatives start, I mean, the, Republicans spend just as much money when they're in office as Democrats do. Uh, it, the, both parties end up starting just as many wars as the other party. Like, it's the, the tendency to expand and do more and control more. It's, it's the position, not the person. This is extreme, though. This is but, extreme. Right, but also, the, the Great Reset was just the name of an annual conference that the World Economic Forum had. The World Economic Forum throws this annual conference in Davos where they get all of the oligarchs from around the world, and they get the leaders from Putin to Xi to Biden to Obama to I Trump. I don't know if Biden was ever. Oh, yeah, at, at the actual forum. But, yeah, the global, right. the young global leaders were a, right. a there was, group Right, they've got their little club as well. Right. But, like, right, da Davos is an annual conference of the richest and most powerful people in the world. Every year they give that conference a name. One year they named it the Great Reset. They also wrote a book. They also yeah, have of a course. section of their website. Of, yeah. It's also, I think, an ideology of course, that they've every been promoting year, no, every, for a long I mean, time. Yes, every year they try to promote their conference in some other way. 
that year the the founder of the thing wrote a book that he was trying to sling like people selling merch at conferences shouldn't be confused for kind of a a kind of global hegemonic I still think it, well, I think when you go back and you look at all of their ideology, they just finally gave it a name. So it wasn't that, oh, this was just the name how of do you have, that one year. They finally how do you gave have, it a title. How do you have people, like, so you've got U- Ukraine, Russia, China, U.S., Turkey, Syria, like, all, plus you have Elon Musk, and plus you have Bill Gates, and plus, like, these people don't agree. Like, elites are in conflict with each other for supremacy, Right, so how can they is, all be colluding right. toward one single ideology? Well, for one, I don't, you know, there's a, right, there's a lot of different people that show up to the conference itself, but the world, the global young leaders is a different, that's a grooming ground, a platform where they've brought in a bunch of these leaders like Justin Trudeau, like Jacinda Ardern, who've gone on to then rule countries and rule them, interestingly, very similarly. And we saw this during the pandemic, their way of going about controlling the pandemic was very similar compared to other places that believe in different values. So, uh, or should be, I mean, you know, ideally Australia, Canada, New Zealand believe in certain values. I don't think they showed that during the pandemic. I thought they showed something much more authoritarian and scary. So, but they showed something very, very similar. They led their countries in the exact same way. Right. But to me, the material conditions produce those outcomes, not conspiracies where people are indoctrinated in, in a young right. leadership club. Well, we didn't really see that here in the U.S. all across the board then. I mean, if that was, you know, a, a material condition, then we would have seen more, even from the right that did that, that don't participate, that are not these global young leaders. But instead, you see Gavin Newsom running California in a very similar way. Guess what? Global young leader. But most big cities controlled by Democrats were run, were run the right. same way same during way the Canada. pandemic, right? And it's, many of them were global young leaders. I mean, but, but, and many of them weren't. That's what I'm saying. It, it doesn't, whether they were global young leaders or not doesn't matter. What matters is that they were Democrats in position of power. Right. Whether they were global young leaders through the World Economic Forum or not, they had right. very similar COVID policies. But that also could be just sheep mentality. I mean, once right, people, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's once the point. one group that's, starts to do it and they say, hey. What, that's what, what, what creates the mentality is the underlying structural. But somebody even visions. has to begin that mentality and feed that mentality. And so if the it is. structure does it. Well, it's the, you know, who, it's just like the establishment news, right? When they're planting ideas right. into people and then people just kind of go along with it. And every single establishment news outlet starts to parrot the exact same thing over and over and over again. It's easy to then get everybody in the masses to go along with it because they don't want to be the odd man out. Nobody wants to be the last one standing or the contrarian. No one wants to be the contrarian. But I, I think so they what, just go along. What, you're, what, what you're getting at causes people to maybe think, oh, right, it's these, you know, World Economic Forum people or it's these specific people. If we voted in different people, then it would be different because they wouldn't have those same ideas and they wouldn't be tempted by this. And I think that's wrong because what no, it happens is that anyone or maybe some people are more immune to this kind of corruption, but no, most people slotted into these positions, they will eventually come to wield power in this way because it's so intoxicating and seductive. And so I think we need to actually reform the institutions, make them smaller, break them up, make them have less capacity to harm or control you so it, so that it doesn't matter which person you put in that position because there's only so, so much that they can do. So you think that it's just part of the natural human condition that once you get into a position of power, you become this authoritarian yes. dictator. Well, what, how do you then explain people like Ron DeSantis or any other Republican running in uh, Ron DeSantis is trying to criminalize people from <laughs> saying the word gay in school right now. Like he's now, they're all, they just have different types of, like Republicans or the, or the yeah, the, the book burnings or the, like, the, the long history of authoritarianism in the Republican Party. It's 
different issues. It's not on COVID, thank goodness. I would much rather live under Republican COVID rule than Democratic COVID rule, don't get me wrong. But there's a there's a similar desire to 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 grab power and force it on people. It's just on different issues. And wasn't Tulsi Gabbard one of one of these yeah, like young leaders? Was. Yeah. And so and she's like a DeSantis type now, right? I, I, that's debatable. I mean, she's still a Democrat and came from the liberal yeah, side of things. So I should say, and by the, the way, w- I should say on the not literally Trump, because people say, "Oh, that's not what the bill says." I have looked at it. It does no, it doesn't. It's poorly we'll named. Exactly that. It, it does, I, I think, in a worrisome way, chill any acknowledgement of uh, same-sex couples or opposite sex, grade. actually, or opposite. Or it, it makes it's a very badly written and confusing bill, but mm-hmm. it, it is not quite the the version of you uh, that you get in the mainstream media. It's, it's not quite been characterized. So just but want yes. to get that out of the way so I'm not attacked for having spread fake news on that regard. Yeah, and I, and I agree with Robbie. It's not, it's not, and it's not just the human condition. Globalized capitalism creates a series of incentives that kind of that draws out the type of outcomes that we see. And I think that explains it. Robbie and I disagree on how you would deal with that. But it, it's not that if you could eliminate Davos, that, that forum from existing that you would then have completely different outcomes. You'd have the, you'd have the same outcomes, maybe slightly different people, because maybe, maybe Pete Buttigieg doesn't get into the Davos thing, and, and somebody else does. And so we've got a different Pete Buttigieg right. as transportation secretary, but the policy would not be different because the incentives created by the system are eventually going to lead to the outcomes that we're seeing. Yeah. yeah, I just think your parents have some sort of an influence on you. So if your parents raise you, for example, with certain morals and values, then you're probably going to be raised with those certain morals and values. And the same thing happens when you're case, a lo- have lo- local different... leader and you're being groomed by one big entity that basically says to you, I'm going to give you power, I'm going to give you uh, prestige, I'm going to give you connections, I'm going to help you. I mean, the fact that so many of them have been able to rise up into positions to lead countries and be some of the youngest leaders around the world of those nations is but astonishing. But they don't have the same values. So they've, it's like having they sure 30 different seem like it's it. like having 30 different parents from Elon Musk to Xi to Putin. Like so which parent are you listening to? Like it doesn't I think they they a lot of them seem to emulate China. And now you've got Justin Trudeau on Well, that's a different yeah. conspiracy then. Say, let's say that China then runs the world. Like, that's not Davos. Like, yes, they, well, the, they but attend that's where, Davos. That's where I think that, but that's, so it goes deeper than that. So it's not just these Davos people, but a lot of people believe that that is actually connected to China and funding from China and implementation of a mentality coming from China to try to influence Western way of thinking in a very um, subdued and even subconscious way to get us to go along more with their way of running the world. I mean, I think they're they're influencing us in a very non-subconscious way, in a very conscious, deliberate way, right? They're saying, you have to, these are the cultural products you must produce if you want access to our markets, no criticism. Like, they're being upfront about it. It's not insidious. It's it's stated. (laughs) Or maybe they're doing it in multiple layers. Yeah. Sure. I mean, they send representatives to Davos. They do. The, uh, the only other thing that I thought uh, of interest in uh, the Russell Brand uh, clip, I, so I thought he was making a good point in general. Like, we're condemning Russia for this behavior. But you got to live your values. You have to live, yeah. uh, you know, civil liberties if we're so concerned about what they're doing. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, obsession with democracy, though, that I don't always necessarily share. Like, democracies can do bad things, or, or bad policies can be arrived at democratically, sure. right? So it's not, it's, it's, I, I think demo- democracies often produce better policies than the alternative government arrangements, but it's not perfect. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people could get together and decide to do a really bad thing. Right, they could kill Kim. We could all vote. We could <laughs> well, the two of you right now might be voting <laughs> yeah, on that. Right now, yeah, we're voting against the World Economic uh, Forum uh, right. panic that you're, yeah. So this is, this is a good example. Right, right. Well, we'll have more rising uh, after this. Stick with us. And hopefully I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> The debate among transgender athletes is reaching a boiling point across the country. Last week, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a bill that bans transgender women and girls from participating in women's sports offered in Iowa's schools, colleges, and universities. According to the Des Moines Register, Media.com, Iowa poll, 46% of Iowans favor the law, while 45% oppose it, and another 9% say they are not sure. Similar types of legislation being proposed across the country in states like South Carolina, Indiana, Utah, and more. The issue is also emanating into law school discussions. Most recently, Duke University law professor Kathleen Stock caused uproar with an essay in which she argues, quote, though it is normally polite and desirable to observe the preferred descriptors and pronouns of trans people in interpersonal contexts, there are times when literal and accurate reference to actual sex is important, unquote, citing medical settings, prisons, and sports teams. Here with us to discuss is co-host of Blocked and Reported and author of The Quick Fix, Jesse Single, and co-founder of OutSports, Sid Ziegler. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Morning. And so, uh, Sid, what did you make of the the Iowa law that uh, is that is that's being pushed by the governor there? Well, the, the transgender athlete debate has been dominated a lot by some people who want unfettered access for transgender women to women's sports and people who want to ban them altogether. Uh, I'm somewhere in between. I, I think that trans girls and trans women can have access to sports that there should be smart, thoughtful, science-based uh, transition requirements. So I'm not for ban banning girls from girls' sports, whether they're trans girls or cis girls, but I think there are better ways to address this. Jesse, you and I, uh, I, I guess, travel in some similar professional uh, circles. We have conversations about uh, issues, controversial issues like this one. Uh, these are often conversations that prompt a lot of, I, I would say, uh, kind of heated response from activists on behalf of the transgender community, not most uh, trans people themselves, but a, a certain number of uh, kind of very social justice activists who on this issue will, will permit no debate and no discussion. And what happened to Kathleen Stock is, is, a, good, is a good indication. I know they've They've really come after you for, for writing about this subject with a level of, of nuance. So, so, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts at this point? And, and share a little bit about, you know, what you've, what you've seen in, in trying to actually even just take the position that, that, that Sid just did. That is not enough for a lot of the people I've had interactions with. And I know, I know that you've had interactions with. Yeah, I think there's an unfortunate siege mentality that has set in on both sides. Um, I'm, I'm with Sid that I don't think states should be legislating this from a top. And there's much worse and more damaging laws uh, that have been passed. Banning access to youth transition. The situation in Texas is genuinely terrible. Um, I, I think we just these are complicated discussions and there needs to be open debate. I think they're often is an open debate. And Kathleen Stock is a, a good example of someone who laid out in a um, 
basically a law review article, a position that I think most people hold, which is that we should respect trans people's identities, but there are probably certain settings where biological sex should prevail. And for that, she's sort of become a pariah among philosophers. She she felt she couldn't continue at her university in the UK uh, because of the harassment she received there. So I'm um, I, I'm just, my stance is not controversial. I, I think we need to be able to dis- discuss this stuff. And unfortunately, it's hard to do so both if your career can be ruined for saying the wrong thing and if you literally have right-wing state legislators really trying to interfere with this issue and interfere with the discussion in their own way. So I'm just curious, what would you say is the cutoff? So if you were to, if you were to, because I'm with you on this, I actually don't think this should be legislated by the state. I think this should be a case-by-case basis. Everybody's different. Um, everybody's bodies are different, I suppose, and they're in their transitions, perhaps. And so uh, what would you say if there was an athlete wanting to compete what would be what would what would be the cutoff for you? Well, so look back, look at youth sports. Five, six, seven year olds are playing together, girls and boys. You know, I'm a I'm a football referee. And when I referee youth flag football, it's boys and girls together. At some point around the time of puberty, society has agreed that there should be a division between male and female sports. And that's when you start to see real divisions, for example, in track and field or swimming times where male athletes start to separate themselves um, from female athletes, particularly at at the higher levels. So I think it's a combination of age where where you have to start mitigating the effects of puberty. And you also have to take into account, is this a right, we're talking about recreational sports, uh, uh, competitive sports, recreational sports. I mean, if, if a school wants to have trans women uh, on I, intramural women's teams, I, I, I don't care what they do. The recreational sports are just, are just for recreation. We're talking about competitive sports. And I, I think that's the focus of a lot of these bills and a lot of these conversations. And I do think, believe it or not, there are far more trans women even who agree with this, that there has to be some kind of transition requirement for competitive sports. And again, the the, the conversation gets hijacked by a a handful of very loud voices. Yeah, and Sid, as somebody who covers sports so closely, how is this this debate shaping up kind of on the ground, you know, in in locker rooms, among teams, among among parents of players, uh, versus how how it's playing out on, say, uh, Twitter or in you know, universities. Are you seeing a gap between that? I think it depends. You know, when you look at the the University of Pennsylvania women's swimming team, um, by all reports, and and I've talked to one of the women on the team, most of the team doesn't think that Leah should be on the team. And then there are some, some, some teammates who don't care, and then there are some teammates who really are happy that she's there. Um, so I, I and, and then when I talk to other teams with trans women on them, none they, they welcome the woman. So I think it really is a sport by sport, team by team. When you talk about individual sports, uh, the, the, the couple of trans girls in Connecticut high school, track and field, Leah Thomas and swimming. I think when you talk about individual sports, that's where you really start to see people get upset because there's real measurable times and distances that you're talking about. Um, and, you know, if somebody's the best player on a team, they're the best player on a team. But if they're the fastest, they're the fastest. And in, in a lot of people's minds, I think there is a difference. Well, but even at the, even at the high school level, right, the, I mean, the, the difference in athletic ability, you know, from like ninth grade on is so stark 
between biological men and women. And I, I don't know that I'm satisfied with the, well, it's not as competitive or it's intramural. I, I think people on a sports team want to win. I mean, you're there to have fun, but it, it like they, they want to win. And a lot of the uh, track, swimming, uh, rest, I mean, all of, all of these sports are, are massive differences uh, between the two, uh, the two sexes. So, I, I, Jesse, I, I agree that I think trying to legislate this, I think trying to legislate virtually anything is, is a fraud concept, and this is especially fraud. So, you know, we can take, if we take the idea of state action off the table, sure, fine, I get that. But I don't, you know, I don't begrudge, and, and, but they're public schools. I mean, they, they are state, you know, managed to some degree. So I don't, I, I, I sympathize with, all the officials trying to arrive at something that's going to make everyone happy, and obviously they're not going to be able to do that. But you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I, I am moved by the, the kind of unfairness there is in these girls' sports, uh, even at the high school level, uh, to, to, to bring in someone who is biologically male. They, look, they're going to wipe the floor with, with the rest of the team in, in a lot of situations, not just at the, you know, at the level of Leah Thomas. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the fairness concerns, too. I just think the problem with um, a lot of these state laws are just sort of two blunt instruments. And there's there's a huge yeah. difference between someone who hasn't transitioned at all and someone, for who example, goes on puberty blockers and then mm-hmm. cross-sex hormones. In that case, the difference might be almost nil. I, I think part of the problem mm-hmm. is if the sort of mainstream activist line had been what Sid had, has been saying all along, there'd be this wouldn't be such a white-hot debate, but the position of a lot of mainstream progressive organizations has been people are who they say they are full stop, and there can't be any debate on this. I mean, that's basically how the ACLU has come out, and I think that was a mistake, because everyone knows there's going to have to be some degree of compromise here, as Sid is saying. And if I could just jump in, Justice right, he named the ACLU, um, Athlete Allies, another organization. Um, there, there are several organizations that do believe that there should be no transition requirements. But there are a lot of organizations and leaders in the LGBTQ sports world who do think that there should be transition sure. requirements. And, and like I said earlier, the, our voices are getting lost in this screaming match between the other two sides. Yeah, and it, and it feels like for people who are not necessarily involved in this argument, that's something that they should listen to because there's some recent polling shows that it's possible that the kind of public attitudes around this question are seeping into trans rights more generally. So, you know, research from Gallup shows 62% of respondents say trans athletes should only be allowed to play on sports teams that correspond with their birth gender, while 34% say they should be able to play on teams that match their gender identity. And we need to just finish that, Kim. So, yeah. yeah. But on the issue of openly transgender service members, a majority of the public continues to favor allowing openly transgender men and women to serve in the U.S. military at 66%, though this is down from Gallup's previous measure in 2019 when 71% were in favor. So you're seeing kind of for the first time in our lives an erosion of support for, uh, for L- LGBT rights. You just to move backwards when it comes to people saying that, yes, transgender people should be allowed to serve in the military, I think should be disturbing for, you know, advocates of that movement. And I'm, I'm wondering, Sid or Jesse, either, either of you, if you think it might have something to do with the, the right's ability to really elevate this, the Leah Thomas issue becoming, you know, so central, uh, you know, to to kind of the right-wing pushback against it while not being talked about at all on the Democratic side. I, I think there's been a marked shift maybe in the last five years from, from really 
human stories of people losing their jobs or losing housing for being trans, which is a very unpopular thing to do to um, a slightly more militant understanding of this stuff that doesn't really brook any disagreement. And I don't think if you're pro LGBT rights, you shouldn't want anyone's introduction to this issue to be a group like the ACLU arguing that people should be able to compete as women, even if they haven't transitioned at all. It just seems politically suicidal. And I think all the polling bears that out. The polling also bears out that people are against bathroom bills. People are in favor of anti-discrimination statutes. So just which hill are you going to fight and potentially die on? It seems like an easy call to me. You know, yeah, one of the interesting yeah. parts of that poll, and I, I, I say, I would say that this issue is not a left versus right issue, because I, I know people who are conservative who support, who are largely in favor of trans athletes competing as their gender, and I know a number of liberal Democrats who are fiercely against it, and and this this cuts, it, it's just not as easy as you know, Republican, Democrat, left and right. And I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons that the Republicans have seized on it. They see this athlete issue as something that 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 can garner support uh, across ideologies. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing these unfortunate bans. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Iran has claimed responsibility for a barrage of missile attacks made against a U.S. consulate complex in Erbil, Iraq, on Sunday, saying it was retaliation for an Israeli strike in Syria earlier this week that killed two Iranian soldiers. According to the AP, Tehran has also claimed without evidence that the strike is actually targeting a, quote, Israeli spy center located at or near the U.S. consulate. Yeah. So I guess their, their aim is as good as ours when we <laughs> blow up a car... <laughs> full of a bunch of kids and say, oh, yeah, that was a terrorist, we thought. Although it sounds like they didn't kill anybody. There are conflicting reports. Some, there have been some anonymous reports that, uh, that there were a couple casualties, uh, but everybody else is saying that, no, that, that didn't happen. Uh, so Israel launched airstrikes in Syria that mm. killed two Iranians, and so this was, a re- this was a response to that. They didn't hit any... No, so we we don't know we we don't know if you know it came it came awfully close to a U.S. complex, if not actually hitting a U.S. complex. It's not entirely clear uh, whether they if they whether they warned the U.S. ahead of time as they've done before to make sure that there were because they don't want Americans to die, right? Because um, then we have to then we have to then, really now we got another 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 war. Uh, but it, it is interesting though that we didn't hear anything about these the Israeli strike in Syria. I mean, it was reported, obviously, right. so maybe some of our viewers heard about it, but it did not make news in the United States no. that Israel, you know, it continues to shell Syria and killed uh, two Iranians. And Iran is just not going to let that go without some type of retaliation. Well, all of our focus has been on Ukraine. So there's been little uh, paying attention to anything else going on. But I but I did see actually those attacks happening in Syria. And I even shared it on, I think, my Twitter feed. And, you know, the caption was, this is not Ukraine, that this was Syria, that these were attacks by the Israelis onto Syria. Um, and so, yeah. And then there wasn't even a whole lot of news even about these missiles being fired off by Iran. Um, there was very little even coverage on that because we've been so focused, hyper-focused on Ukraine. But if we remember, it wasn't very long ago where we, we were very worried about war with Iran. And all eyes mm-hmm. were on what was going on with Iran and Trump. And was he going to end up marching us into a war with Iran? We know John Bolton was really all right. about that. 
One um, of the stupidest blunders Trump made, I thought, over the right. course of his presidency, relying on John Bolton, a figure who was totally contrary to the foreign policy views that Trump had expressed yeah. during the campaign that, that actually m- made a, a lot of people who wouldn't have liked Trump otherwise excited about him because he was supposedly going to chart a different foreign policy course, said the Iraq war was wrong, it was stupid, etc., and then brings on Bolton w- w- sort of as if Trump has no real grasp of the issue or doesn't care enough to think deeply about, well, actually, this person is totally contrary to the views I've expressed. And then, and then sure enough, Bolton you know, exits and totally betrays Trump, right. and he's all furious. But it's like... And then he acts like somebody else hired him. He's like, oh, yeah, that guy was here. But you picked him. You picked him, these people. Right. All these yeah. people were people you picked. Only yeah, because he people. liked his television presence. He thought he Ugh. looked good on Fox, right? He was like, oh, look at this guy with the mustache. He's kind of cool, so let's bring him on board. But, yeah, Bolton was absolutely – I, he, I he agree saw Bolton doing yeah. the – he was doing this on the, you remember that? <laughs> uh, that Fox clip where he does that, uh, that side-to-side workout thing, and uh, it's an it's a entertaining gif. Right, right. The other thing this reminds us of is that there are still U.S. troops in Iraq. And yes. people for years have been saying, get the U.S. troops out of Iraq because one of the... Or get them ris- away from this Israeli spy center. Don't have them next to an Israeli spy center. <laughs> that may not exist. Yeah, right, may, we don't may, but prob- I mean, but is, probably. Israel, does. Yeah, Israel, Israel definitely has... It'd be more surprising centers. if they didn't have a spy center. Yeah. Right. It, everybody has spy centers in Erbil. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a great place you know, to have access to all different parts of the but region. But especially since the Israelis are so hyper-focused on Iran, it makes right. way more sense that they would have not only one, but many multiples Right, because the Kurdish region is very close to to the Iran there. But people have been saying a U.S. soldier is going to be killed either on purpose or accidentally by either one of these Iran missile strikes or by one of the many militias that are that are backed and funded by Iran, but actually act somewhat autonomously. It wouldn't necessarily be that Iran ordered a militia to lob something into the green zone and then it ends up killing somebody at like a, a. a 7-Eleven that's inside the green zone, and now, well, now you have, now you have Americans who are dying in the hands of Iranians, and now you got to have a giant war. So the answer would be get them out of there. Yeah, that's the best way to have them not get accidentally killed by airstrikes. Well, and the Iraqis would like there. us to leave as well, because for that yeah. same, they, they keep don't telling us like yeah. get go, out, go, yeah, go. because they don't want their country in the middle of that war. Right. You know, they're fed up with it. There's- yeah, Erbil's now like a has been massively developed. It's a really sophisticated city. Does not want to be in the middle of no. it's a proxy war. Right. But, you know, um, this made me really think if, I mean, we've made a lot of enemies around the world with our foreign policy. And what if they all decided to just start doing whatever they want to do? All at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's, now that we're all focused on Ukraine and we're sending all of our, you know, uh, aid and attention over to Ukraine, what happens if Iran says, all right, this is the time, here's my time to strike? What if China says, all right, here's my time to take Taiwan I mean, there a lot of we haven't made a lot of friends, unfortunately, around the world. And if they all just decided, you know, now is the time because they're distracted and they, they would have to split their resources. Where would that leave us? And which which one would we focus on? Would we focus right. on Iran? Would we focus on Taiwan? Well, bad, would we continue with Ukraine. Bad actors do? wait for for the other nations to be distracted during uh, World War One. The Turks waited until the middle of World War One to start massacring the Armenians because yeah. we were too busy to do otherwise. I mean, look, I'm not giving anybody any ideas, but 
this, I mean. And we, we don't have the luxury of being mad at everyone at the same time because we need to Venezuela, Iran. Right. Somebody's got to cough up some oil so we can't just be mad at everyone. Good Which one reason, do you think we choose? Yeah, good reason to empower Zelensky to negotiate an end to this yeah. like as quickly as possible. And, yeah. and, and, and stop playing these cute games of like, well, if something's bad for an American adversary, then it's good for America. Right. No, not necessarily, because you don't know where this is heading. Just let's wrap it up. Enough. Yeah. Which one would we pick? For, for to be friends with? No, no, or no. to go to war with? Yeah, if we had, if all of them went, if all of them did all the bad, North Korea does something bad, China goes after Taiwan, or Iran attacks. They all do them at the same time. They all do it at the same time because they've strategized this and decided they can't take everybody on at once. And since we have signed up, unfortunately, this is one of the problems with our foreign policies, that we are defending the entire we'd, world, we'd especially bomb, Europe. We'd bomb Iran because they don't have nukes yet. Right. Well, that, we, that they would claim. And that well, we, they, don't have, they don't yet have a, a nuke that is going to like, explode in Washington, D.C. So, so we'd go after that, Iran. That, which is why they're racing to build one. Yeah. So it's because then you can act, then <laughs> right. you can do as Russia does, right? You can just start invading your neighbors yeah. and we're not going to do anything about it. And we, and we shouldn't do anything about right. it. But yeah, the, the, the nuke as the, well, I, I don't know. It, it starts to get confusing when it just means you can initiate a war if you have a nuke right. because we're not going to do anything. But, but the we whole can't initiate can a war you. because mm-hmm. the whole world will cancel Oh, we you. can. We can. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll do another one soon. We're a little tired from Iraq and Afghanistan. But we're worn out. Give right. us a decade. We'll, I don't know. We'll that, does, that does give Iran an incentive. I mean, if they think of it from that perspective of what we just kind of played around with, they might be thinking, yeah, there's no way I want to do a deal. Maybe I want to get next, a new. The next MAGA president will invade Canada to overthrow the regime, <laughs> the, the anti-trucker regime. <laughs> uh, we'll get something. We'll get something. Do they have nukes? Canada? Yeah. yeah I think gave they gave them all up, right? Oh, no, maybe they're not. A, are they not a nuclear power? No, I don't think they are. So many countries decided they don't need them anymore because we have them. Well, what we, what we an forced, embarrassing think... way for the world to end, getting nuked by Canada. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, in that, uh, what's that strong bad cartoon or whatever? Remember that? Yes, yeah, where it was like the Australians. Canada on. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yes, the Australia. Australia. Down at the bottom being like, WTF, mate. Yes. <laughs> but, and France is, but I am tired. I say that all the time. That was a fun cartoon. Good stuff. Unfortunately, it might hopefully... No, it won't. It won't come true. Knock on wood, right? No nuclear winner. Yeah. I'd rather be alive. I'm against that. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. Tomorrow on Rising, Batya Angar Sargon will join us to discuss the elite class's culture war on rising gas prices. And writer Andrew Weatherhead details his reporting on the ties between Democratic pollsters and corporations. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss a video. And if you are more of a podcast fan, we're now available wherever you listen to podcasts. So we will see you everywhere. We will see you wherever you want to find us. We'll have Kim in studio all week still, right? I think so. My flight is scheduled to go tomorrow, but we might change it until Thursday, so we'll see. We'll just have to stick around and find out. (laughs) But you'll still see me somewhere. I just don't know where. Where's Waldo? Where's Kim? Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye.